Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're going to look at John chapter 1, and there's that famous Christmas song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. Five, Lords of Leaping, seven, whatever. Okay, so today we're going to do the 12, not days of Jesus, but the 12 names of Jesus. And so we're going to be in John chapter 1, which when you think about the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic Gospels. And the reason why they're called synoptic, synoptic means the same, and optic means eyes. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell a lot of the same material, and they have the birth narratives. At least Matthew and Luke have the birth narratives. Mark doesn't. John doesn't necessarily have a birth narrative about how Jesus was born because it starts in eternity past with Jesus always existing and then coming in the flesh. So this is the prologue of John chapter 1. So let's start in verse 1. In the beginning, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God. I'm sorry, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives life to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only one Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, I want to start backwards in the verse. You're looking at all the different names, trying to count them up? (laughs) Okay. I want to start backwards in verse 18. The very last phrase of verse 18 says what? He has made him known. So who's the he? Jesus, the Word, has made God the Father known. And we'll talk a little bit about this Sunday morning. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, that's a very interesting word in the original language. It's only used right here this one time. He has made him known. It's the Greek word where we get the word exegete or exegesis to explain, to make known, to narrate or expose. So, in other words, what John is saying is Jesus is the physical, visible person, the second person of the Trinity, who tells the story or makes known the invisible God. Because God the Father is invisible. So Christ has revealed to us who God is by coming in the flesh. At Christmas time, we call this the virgin birth, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. So, from this text today, I want us to see, make sure, since we're back in this room again, back in the sanctuary, not in the the room back there, uh, because the kids' program is, last week it was awesome, they did a great job, so we're back in here tonight. So, 12 visions, or 12 portraits, or 12 truths, or 12 names about Jesus that should give us a uh, a white-hot joy 
this Christmas season. Okay? So, what is the first? And this is probably the most profound to, to wrap our minds around. Jesus is the eternal word. The eternal word. John packs a lot of theology in verse 1. Especially in the way that he uses the verbs. In the beginning was. Now was. What type of verb is was? It's, it's a past tense, a past tense of being. Okay? But John uses what we call the imperfect tense, which means continual action in the past. In other words, we can translate this as, in the beginning, Jesus has always existed. He always was. There never was a point in time where Jesus came into being. Jesus has no beginning. He's the eternal word. He's always existed as God. So, Jesus is God, yet Jesus is a distinct person from God the Father. Jesus and the Father are not the same persons. They're two separate persons. The first person of the Trinity is the Father. The second person of the Trinity is Jesus. They're two distinct persons, but they both share the same essence of being God. The Father's fully God. Jesus is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. This is what the Trinity is all about. So Jesus has always existed as the eternal Son of God, always existing, distinct from the Father, but always with the Father. And then He is the Creator. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. When we think about creation, we often think about God the Father being the one who created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But Jesus is fully God, so Jesus was also the one who created, as well as the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by Him, this is talking about Jesus, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, but He's also God the Son. So let me ask you a question. Is Jesus the Son of God? Is he God the Son? Yes. He's the second person of the Trinity, the divine Son, but he's also fully God. And Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of on high. So Jesus is the eternal word. The, the ever existing, always existing, never had a beginning, second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son, the Word. Okay, so that's the first name of Jesus. He's the Word. Okay, second. This is the 12 names of Jesus, remember? So the second name of Jesus He's the light of the world. Verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I think we need to really pay attention to verse 5. Are we living in a world of darkness? Are we living in a world of spiritual chaos and blindness? And if we're not careful, we can think that the darkness is winning because that's all we see. But it says the light, and Jesus is the light. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. No matter how dark things get, it will not overcome Jesus as the light of the world. He is sovereign. He is the light. And later on in John, in John eight twelve, Jesus stands up at the festival of lights and spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's the light of the world. You know, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says what? It's not in your notes, but the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Upon them, a great light has shone. And then goes on to declare how he will be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace. So, if Jesus is the light of the world, and those who follow him don't walk in darkness, how should we live in light, in light of Jesus being the light? Okay, we'll play on words there. 1 John 1, 7-9. If we walk in the light... As he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We walk in the light by confessing sin. Now, obviously, this is not a time for you to confess your sins to your pastor. This is not like a Catholic church where you guys line up and come to confession here. But let's just ask the rhetorical question. What sins do we need to confess this Christian, Christmas? And basically, do you know what the word confess means? It means to agree with God. To agree with God that what you've done is, sin, is sinful and to agree with him. So, number one, Jesus, the first name of Jesus, he's the eternal word. Second name of Jesus, he's the light of the world. Okay, third name of Jesus tonight. Jesus is the giver of new birth. Jesus is the giver of new birth. Verse 12. Verses, actually, we're not going to go every verse, but verses 6 through 9 is mainly talking about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist was the one that was the forerunner to come point to the light but was not the light himself. But notice verse 11. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But, verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We're born of God. We're born again of God through Jesus who gives us the new birth. Now, do you cause yourself to be born again? No, no more than you cause yourself to be physically born. You don't somehow bring yourself out of spiritual deadness and make yourself spiritually alive. Um, obviously, verse 12, we do receive Jesus. We believe in Jesus, but why? Why did you receive Jesus? Why did you believe in Jesus? Was it because of your physical birth? Because you were just kind of born into the Christian family? No. Was it because you used your free will to get in because you were so sensitive to spiritual things? No. We aren't Christians by natural descent by being born to our parents or somehow being born in a Christian home. We aren't born through our own free will, the will of man. How are we born? We are born of God. So Jesus comes to give us the new birth. And Jesus talks about this later on in John chapter 6, verses 63 through 65. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. The Spirit has to give you life. The Spirit has to give you birth. You're born again through the Spirit of God. And so you have to be born again. And you can't do this. Only God can do that. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Now let's just think about this for a moment. Let's talk about worship. 
Do you ever fall on your knees and worship Jesus that he caused you to be born again? Because he could have left you in spiritual deadness. You, deserve, you and I deserve to be left in our spiritual deadness, separated from God. But Jesus reached down and caused us to be born again through the Holy Spirit. You know, my favorite Christmas hymn, or carol if you want to call it a carol, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I think it's the most theologically rich of all the, of all the, of all the Christmas carols. Hark the Herald's the most theologically rich. It's written by Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley. And it's okay. We'll, we'll give the Methodists a pass. They can write some good hymns. Um, but let me just tell you, let me read to you one of the, the verses. Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Jesus was born to give us second birth. His first birth ultimately led to our second birth, being born again. So Jesus, number one, is the eternal word, the eternal son of God always existing in eternity past, distinct from the Father, but fully God. Number two, he's the light of the world, the light that shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Number three, he is the giver of new birth. But here's the fourth thing, and this is where the first thing, the eternal word, comes to a point in time in history we call the incarnation. Fourth, Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, we've already seen this in verse 1, that Jesus has always existed in eternity past. But at a point in time, he was born of a virgin. We call this the incarnation, the coming in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1, 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now look at verse 14. And the Word, who's the Word? The eternal Son of God, Jesus, who's, who is fully God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now don't think of subtraction when you think of Jesus, okay? There's nothing... Jesus merely added humanity to his deity. At a point in time, he became flesh and he dwelt. John is very strategic in using that word dwelt. Takes us back to the Old Testament. The word literally means to tabernacle or to pitch his tent among us. Jesus is the tabernacle of the invisible God. Which makes us ask a question. What was the tabernacle in the Old Testament? It was the tent where God dwelled. Could the people see God? No. He was the invisible God. The only manifestation of God in the Old Testament was the Shekinah cloud, the glory that would rest on the tabernacle. But that represented God living with his people, God dwelling with his people, and it was located in a tent. And everywhere the tent went, that's where God was. Who had access to the tent? Well, Moses could go into the tent because he got instructions on how to build it. But only really the high priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies, go into the tent, meet with God, the average Israelite couldn't do that. So when Jesus comes in the flesh, and he's the temple now, he's the tent, God is dwelling with us, not in a physical structure like a tent, but in a person, Jesus. So Colossians 2.9, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus came to Bethlehem and was born and placed in a wooden trough. 33 years later, he went outside the city of Jerusalem and died on a wooden cross. 
the incarnation is absolutely essential for us to have salvation. God could have wiped our sins away by just getting a big magic eraser in the sky and saying, your sins are forgiven. That's not how he chose to do it. God chose to enter into human form in Jesus to leave the glories of heaven, to come and to serve us and to die and to be human. Fully God, fully man. To dwell among us. Now let's take that temple tabernacle imagery. Here's the fifth thing about Jesus. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, comma, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now is John stuttering? Glory, glory. Why is the word glory there? Jesus is God's glory, full of grace and truth. What did I say about the Old Testament tabernacle? It's where God's glory shone most fully. It was called the Shekinah glory. In the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God, or the glory cloud, would settle upon the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the temple, which was the visible manifestation of God's power and glory among the Israelites. That's how Exodus ends. I love the way the book of Exodus ends. It just ends, okay, the, the last half of Exodus is the building of the tabernacle, and finally it's built, and then you got this great summary statement in Exodus 40, 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay, so what's the Old Testament image? The tabernacle was the dwelling place of God, the glory of God dwelt on it, so the full glory of God was on display in a tent. Now, God is everywhere present, and God's glory is seen in creation. And we can look up at the stars, and the, and the stars declare His glory. But God chose to have a physical locale where His glory would most be on display, and it was with the tent. And it was portable until it was finally built as the temple. Okay? Do you remember what Moses asked God before he got instructions? He goes up on the mountain, and, and, and Moses asks the most ultimate question. What does he say? Show me your glory. Which I find amazing because Moses had already seen the burning bush. He had already seen the Red Sea. He had already seen the ten plagues. And he's like, that's not enough, God. I want to see your glory. We've seen a lot of stuff, Moses, that no person probably else has seen besides you. But that's in Exodus 34. I'm sorry, Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God humors him. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you'll see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses says, I want to see the whole enchilada, God. I want to see the whole thing, the whole glory. And God says, you can't handle the glory. But I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by, and you can see my backside glory. Now, God showed Moses the backside glory. But, eventually, that glory was revealed in the tabernacle. Now, it's interesting. God, Moses says, read it carefully, please show me your glory. And what does God say? I'm going to declare to you my name. So God's name is wrapped up in his glory. So if you keep reading, you find out how God reveals his name. 
And this is the most, probably the most important passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. I call it the Credo or the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This is the first time it shows up in Exodus 34, 5 through 8, but it's repeated at least five or six times throughout. And this is, a, this is the description that God himself reveals to Moses. If you want to know about the glory of God, the name of God, the character of God, let's read this together. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will, know by, and who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now go back to John. Your Bible's open at John. Let's read verse 14 again. The Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what does it mean that Jesus is full of grace and truth? He is the glorious embodiment of who God is, and how he revealed himself to Moses and all throughout the Old Testament. So what does God say about himself in Exodus 34? The Lord is merciful. This really means a mother's love toward her nursing baby. It conveys the idea of mercy for the helpless. It also can mean the love of a father. The Lord is gracious. This comes from the root word to bend or incline or come down. It carries the idea that a superior or sovereign is bending down to a helpless rebel who in no way deserves love or mercy. Does God owe us anything? No, but he chooses to bend down and grant us grace. The Lord is slow to anger. Literally, God is long-suffering or patient and snorting his nose in anger like a horse or a stallion. God does not execute immediate justice or discipline us, but is patient. He has a high threshold of tolerance for our disobedience. Aren't you thankful God has a high threshold of tolerance? It should be not. God does not execute immediate justice. Yeah, that's a, that's a typo. If God does execute immediate justice, we'd all be dead. The Lord is abounding in chesed. Say it to your neighbor, but don't spit on them. It's that Hebrew word, chesed. Probably the most important word in the passage. What does Hesed mean? You've heard it from me for years. It's God's tenacious fidelity and resolve to maintain a relationship with his sinful people. Where God does not break his promises, he obligates himself in covenant love to a sinful people. And the Lord abounds in, in, in faithfulness. This means that God is certain, firm, he can be counted upon. And then the Lord is a forgiving God. He cancels the debt against us. He wipes the slate clean. He tosses our sin and rebellion actions to the bottom of the sea. Our sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. So Jesus, as the temple or tabernacle or the dwelling place of God, who reveals the full glory of God, is full of grace and truth. Jesus is this loving, compassionate, caring, forgiving Savior. At the end of Exodus, that passage, what does Moses do when God reveals his name and his character? It says Moses quickly bows down and worships on his face. So our response to Jesus coming in the flesh, being the full glory of God, full of grace and truth, should be the same response that Moses had when God revealed his name to, G to, to, to Moses. He fell down and worshiped. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him. 
born the king of angels. Oh, come what? Let us adore him. Come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ Lord. What does it mean to adore? To love, to honor, to worship, to bow down. So these names are not merely theological truths to fill our heads with great issues about who Jesus is, as important as that is. These are meant to drive us to our knees in worship. He's the eternal word. He's the light of the world. He's the giver of new birth. He is the glory of God. He's God in the flesh. Okay, let's keep moving. So I want us to go down to let's go to verse well let's go to verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus, this is John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here's the sixth name of Jesus. Pretty obvious, right? Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, we talked about this last week when we looked at Isaiah 40. Behold your God. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. What does behold mean? Stop. Look. Pay attention. Look, look at him. See. See that man walking across there? That's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now that would be a very interesting thing because obviously John's speaking metaphorically, but if that's the first time, like we're used to hearing about Jesus being the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, but think about you're the first time you ever heard that. And you're listening to John the Baptist, and Jesus walks by and he goes, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And people are like, Lamb of God? That's a man walking by there. What do you mean Lamb of God? When you, if you're a good Israelite and you heard Lamb of God who takes away sin, what should that have taken you back to? Exodus. It would bring you back to images of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. What happened at the Passover? You guys know that. They had to go get a lamb, a spot, pure spotless lamb, and they would kill the lamb, slaughter the lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the lentils and doorposts of the house so that on the night that the destroyer, the angel of death, passed over, if, if there was no blood, then the, the firstborn would die. But it was being spared the wrath of God by the blood of a sacrificial substitute in the form of a pure, spotless lamb. In other words, a lamb being slaughtered showed that God's wrath was satisfied by a substitute being sacrificed in the place of the Israelites. Now let me just ask you a question here. Were the Israelites any better than the Egyptians? What was the only difference? God provided atonement for the Israelites. He didn't provide it for the Egyptians. So it wasn't because Israelite was all that. It was because God was in covenant faithfulness with them, with them, but they still had to kill the lamb and put the, put the blood on there. So Jesus is the lamb of God. So it takes us back to the imagery of a lamb in the Old Testament, going all the way back to the Passover, going to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then 1 Peter 1, 18-19, Knowing that you were ransomed, that means purchased or, or redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not, you weren't bought with perishable things such as silver or gold. What were you ransomed with? What were you bought with? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish. Or spot. And what did the, the angel say to Joseph? Matthew 1 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who died in our place, satisfying the wrath of God that stood against us because of our sin. We should have been the ones to die for our sins. Jesus, the pure spotless Lamb, the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh, the light of the world, the giver of new birth, the glory of God, He died in our place. All right, so let's pick up in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. There it is again. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter. Okay, notice the response of the two disciples when they see Jesus, the Lamb of God. What do they do? They follow him. They pledge allegiance to him. Now, this is a different, this is a, this is a kind of a stretch here, but I'm going to give you the seventh one. Jesus is the identity changer. Now, why do I say identity changer? Let's look here. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, what are you seeking? They're like, well, we want to know where you live. And so they came and they stayed with him. And Andrew is the first one that meets Jesus. And what does Andrew do? Andrew goes, gets his brother, Peter, and says, hey, look, we found the Messiah. Come and see. And then Peter is before Jesus. And look at verse 42. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus just like basically looks him straight in the eye and changes his name. Okay? Jesus looks Peter straight in the eye and changes his name. You, your, your, your birth name was Simon. But I'm changing your name to Cephas, which means rock. In essence... Back in those days, when you change somebody's name, you're ultimately changing their identity. How would you like it if somebody just walked up to you and says, you're no longer Jerry, your name's Geraldo. Or you're, not, you're no longer Nancy, you're Nora. You'd be like, what gives you authority to change my name? I've had this name my whole life. Well, if your name's Jesus, you can go up to Peter, at that time Simon, and say, you were born Simon, but you're going to get a new name. I'm changing your identity. Your name is Rock. Now, one thing we know about Peter. Was he at first the Rock of faith? No, he was the impetuous guy that denied Jesus three times. But it was upon his confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that, that the church was built upon, that confession. See, here's one of the amazing things that Jesus does when he saves us. He changes our identities. What was our life like before? We go from being spiritually dead rebels at war with God to now being adopted children by a loving Father and being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. When you become a Christian, your identity has changed. You're no longer dead, rebellious sinner, estranged and alienated and hostile to God. You're now child, adopted, saint, part of the family, a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You have a new identity. Jesus is the identity changer. He changes your name. He changes your identity. Colossians 1, 
He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the only one that can take us from being spiritually dead, sinners, rebels, to making us alive, adopted into God's family, children. And so what he does to Peter is a picture of what he does to us. Your name is no longer sinner, dead in your sins. Your name is now saint, child of God. I'm going to change your identity when I saved you. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Okay. All right, we're number eight on the 12 names of Jesus. All right, here we go. Number eight. We see Jesus as the demander of allegiance. Let's keep reading. Let's pick up in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus simply yet powerfully tells Philip what? Follow me. Now, two things about this in the original language. Number one, it's a command. If it's a command, what does that mean? It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. Jesus is commanding. Number two, it's in the present tense, which you could translate this way. I'm, this is Jesus speaking. I'm commanding you to continually be following me. In other words, it's not like a one-time decision where you sign the card. Hey, I, I decided to follow Jesus one time. It is ongoing repentance and faith where we submit to the Lordship of Christ over a lifetime. Okay, let me ask you a question. If you get an invitation in the mail to a wedding... Can you politely refuse not to go if you have other obligations? An invitation. This past week, I got a jury summons. Can I just refuse to show up at a jury summons? No, I'm breaking the law. There's a difference between a summons and an invitation. When Jesus calls us, he's not just inviting us where we can politely say, well, Jesus, I don't really, I, you know, I, I got better things to do. I got to wash my hair or I got, you know, I got things I got to do. It's a summons from the king. And to defy the summons from the king is to defy the king himself. So when Jesus says, follow me, he's demanding our allegiance. He's saying, I'm asking you to give up everything and follow me. We see this in Luke chapter 9, 23 through 25. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Take up our cross. Continually follow Jesus. Not just a one-time, hey, I kind of made this decision 15 years ago, but I'm not making any impact on how I live my life now. Take up your cross means that Jesus has our total allegiance and that we relinquish all self-sufficiency and we totally rely upon him. We admit our weakness, we cling to the cross, we admit that we are bankrupt and we're helpless and we're hopeless without him. So he is the one that changes our identity, but he also demands our allegiance. A lot of people like Jesus as Savior. I like the get out of hell free part of Jesus. I like my sins being forgiven. That's a cool part. Not so much the lordship part. I don't like that, that he's demanding my allegiance and I need to follow him and submit to him. I'll take him as my savior, but I'll wait till later on to take him as my lord. Can't do that. Jesus, you can't divide the office of Christ. You can't take a half Christ. You take him for how he presents himself. He's savior and lord. And sadly, I think a lot of people have misunderstood that over the years and basically said, hey, I'm going to get my get out of hell free card get my, you know, say the prayer and ask Jesus in my heart and then I go and live however I want. 
They've never been told that when you come to Christ, you're submitting to his lordship. He's demands your allegiance. Okay? All right, number nine. We're, we're moving through this pretty quickly. So, number nine, and this is, this is an interesting one. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Notice what Philip tells Nathaniel. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Hey, we, we, we found the guy in the Old Testament that, that Moses and all the prophets were talking about. And notice it's very specific. Jesus is a literal man from Nazareth, born to Joseph, who was in the lineage of King David. He is the Messiah. It's amazing that Philip says, listen, Nathaniel, here he is. We've grown up our whole lives reading about the Messiah. We've read the Old Testament. We've read Moses. We've read the Law and the Prophets. We know the Messiah is coming. We know that he's going to be in the lineage of David. And here he is, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what does he say about him? We found uh, does it say Messiah there? Or am, 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 not, am I getting ahead of myself? Well, let's just keep reading. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold an Israelite, indeed in whom there is no deceit. So, Jesus... The word Messiah means, oh, oh, back up in verse 41. I'm sorry, back up in verse 41. We found the Messiah, which means Christ. That is Andrew talking to Simon, Peter. We found the Messiah. So the Messiah, the word Messiah means anointed one. And you guys have heard me teach this over the years. In the Old Testament, there were three offices that were anointed with oil. The prophets were anointed with oil. The priests were anointed with oil. The kings were anointed with oil. So you had three offices of anointed men in the Old Testament, but there never was one person that held all three offices. You never had a priest who was a king. Priests and kings were separate. So Jesus... When it says he's the Messiah, the anointed one, you take all three of those offices in the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, the king. Jesus is the only one who is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king who fulfills all of those Old Testament prophecies. Now, what do prophets do? They declare the word of God. Jesus is the word. What do the priests do? The priests do the sacrificial system. Jesus is not only the priest, but he's the sacrifice. What do the kings do? The kings ruled. Jesus is the king of kings who rules. And so Nathaniel and Philip, Philip says to Nathaniel, hey, listen, we found the guy that all the Old Testament was talking about. And then Jesus gets on the Pharisees later on in John 5, 39-40. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, I don't have time to expound upon this, but Jesus is basically saying, the entire Old Testament's about me. Pharisees, you should have known this. You're learned in the Bible. You're learned in the Old Testament. You should have seen all those prophecies pointing to me. Over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus that were literally fulfilled in his coming. It's amazing. So the 12 names of Jesus. We've been looking at these. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. Now let's look at the 10th. The 10th name of Jesus. We're getting close to the end here. We see Jesus as the seer into hearts. The seer into hearts. Okay, is Nathaniel jazzed up about the fact that Nathaniel comes to him and says, Hey, we've, I mean, uh, Philip comes to him and says, Hey, we found the Messiah. We found the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And what, is it, what does he say there? Verse 46 Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
What are you talking about? And Philip says, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. (laughs) Jesus saw in Nathanael's heart. Now, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail about this, but the reason why Jesus says, you're a true Israel in whom there's no deceit. What was the, who, was the, who was the founder? Who, whose, name was changed from, who, whose name was changed to Israel back in the Old Testament? Jacob. What was Jacob known for? Being the deceiver. Okay? And so Jesus sees into Nathanael's heart and basically saying, listen, you know, I, I see you have some prejudice in your heart about the fact that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Jesus can peer into you. I, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. I can read your thoughts. I can see into your heart. I know who you are, Nathaniel. So nothing is hidden from Jesus. That's kind of scary. He can see into every one of our hearts down to the depths of our souls. Now, one of the myths of our current age is that people think they're autonomous and free to do whatever they want with no regard for the consequences. Nothing is ever done in a vacuum. Even the things you do in secret, Jesus sees and knows. He has the supernatural ability to peer into your heart, whether you think you're getting away with it or not. Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Psalm 139, 1-3. O Lord, you've searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Okay. How does Nathaniel respond to Jesus looking into his heart and reading his mind and like, I know who you are because I saw you under the fig tree. Let's keep reading. Verse 48. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now that's a confession. Two theological confessions. You're the Son of God, and you're the King of Israel. You're theologically the Son of God, the eternal Word made flesh, and you're also the ruler of the King. So, eleventh, the eleventh name of Jesus, he's the King of Israel. He's the King of Israel. So not only is he confessing Jesus as the Son of God, theologically God the Son, but this is a confession of the absolute sovereign lordship of Christ. It's an acknowledgement that not only is Jesus Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, but he's also absolutely Lord. He is the King. Now, when Jesus came the first time, he was born in a manger. He was a servant He died on the cross and he rose again as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Where is he now? He's the risen Savior at the right hand of the Father. And when he comes back, how is he going to come back? Well, we don't have to guess. Revelation 19, 15 through 16, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus will come back on a white horse as the king. My brother had a teacher in middle school, and his saying was this, you can believe me now or you can believe me later. There's going to be a test. <laughs> you can believe me now or you can believe me later. And that's basically what, what I'm saying here. You can believe me now or you can believe me later. Jesus is coming back as the, the rider on the white horse, the king. Now, 
Let's look at the 12th. We may get done early tonight. On the 12th name of Jesus. Here we go, the 12th name. Finally, Jesus is the only way to heaven. And you may say, I don't see this in this passage. This is where I want us to do a little bit of fun imagery back to the Old Testament. So let's keep reading. Verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now what in the world does that mean? Heaven will be opened and angels going up and down. Image of angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does that mean? Let's go back to Jacob. Genesis chapter 28. Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau. What did Jacob do? Tricked Esau out of his birthright, tricked him out of his blessing. Esau wanted to kill him, so he ends up camping alone at night, and he has a dream. Jacob's Ladder, remember that song? Genesis 28, 12. This is Jacob, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, read that right there. The angels of God were ascending and descending on what? The ladder that came out of heaven. What does Jesus say right there in verse 51? You will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, so what's the difference? In the Old Testament, same imagery. Heaven's open, angels ascending and descending. What's the only difference? In the Old Testament, it was a ladder. In the New Testament, Jesus says, the Son of Man. So the question is, is Jesus the ladder to heaven? And the answer is yes. The Lord proceeds to tell Jacob he'll be blessed, like his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. He'll inherit the promised land. God would be faithful to him. So God reveals this to him in this dream. And then in Genesis 28, 16-17, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So what does Jacob say? I was asleep, and I didn't realize it, but heaven was opened, and there's this gateway to heaven with angels coming up and angels going down. Heaven has been opened. The portal of heaven has been opened in my dream with these angels going up and down. Surely this is the house of God. So he calls the place Bethel. Bet-el. El just means God in Old Testament. Bet. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Bethel, the house of God. So do you see the imagery here? In the Old Testament, Jacob is asleep. Heaven is open. There's a ladder with angels ascending and descending. It's the only way to heaven. Jesus takes that imagery, and instead of it being a ladder, he says, I'm the way to heaven, the only way to heaven. Heaven is open through me. The angels will come down and go up. I'm the ladder. So basically, Jesus is emphatically saying that he himself is the ladder into heaven. He is the only way to get into God's house. What did Jacob say? The gate. What did Jesus say in John 10? I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the only way. I'm the door. I'm Whatever word you want to use for portal, for entryway, Jesus is basically saying to Nathaniel, you think it's awesome to see me as the, that I can read your mind? You're going to see greater things than this when I die on the cross and rise again. I'm the only way to get you to heaven. You know those Old Testament stories about Jacob's ladder and the, the, the angels going up and down and the portal to heaven? Well, that's all fine and good, but I am ultimately even greater than that. I'm the fulfillment of that. I'm the only way to heaven. I'm the ladder. 
I was sent down from heaven by God, and I'm the only way to get back up to heaven, to God. Where did Jesus come? He was the eternal word, came flesh to earth, born of a virgin, incarnation, Merry Christmas. He died, and he rose again, and he went back up to heaven, and he's the only way to heaven. He's the door. He's the way. He's the ladder. He's the gate. He's the entrance. And you guys know that famous passage of Scripture in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That viewpoint is under attack today. That Jesus is the only way. You hear people say, well, he's one of many ways. He's a good way. He's a helpful way. Let me give you a quote, and then I'll, and I'll, I'll have you guess who said it. It's not in your notes because I want to play a little game here. Okay, this is a very famous person that's still living, says this. Quote, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way to heaven. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. Who do you think said that? What? You're correct. It's Oprah Winfrey. Oprah. All right, I'll give you another one. Quote, And though I am a committed Christian, I believe everyone has a right to their own religion. Be you Hindu, Jewish, or Muslim, I believe there are infinite paths to accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Somebody guess who that is. You'll be shocked when I tell you. Stephen Colbert. Late night. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. There's no other way. Jesus is the way. So, the 12 names of Christmas. Let me go back and review them because I don't remember them all. First, Jesus is the eternal word. Second, Jesus is the light of the world. Third, Jesus is the giver of new birth. Fourth, Jesus is God in the flesh. Fifth, Jesus is God's glory full of grace and truth. Sixth, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away our sins. Seventh, Jesus is the identity changer. He changes our names. He changes us from the inside out. Eighth, Jesus is the demander of allegiance. Come follow me. Ninth, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, all those 400 prophecies plus in the Old Testament. Tenth, Jesus is the seer into hearts. He can pierce our hearts and we can't hide from him. Eleventh, Jesus is the king, the coming king. And then twelfth, Jesus is the only way to heaven. The twelve names of Jesus. Now, there are two ways to respond tonight to his majesty. One is individual the second is not it's more outward looking first pledge all your allegiance to the only one worthy of all worship and praise go back and reread john chapter one and spend time the next few weeks leading up to christmas meditating upon these names it's not meant to fill your head with theological facts, but to fill your heart with joy and worship. That's personal. That's individual. But let's think about the context here, the second thing. Don't miss the forest for the trees. What did Andrew and Philip do? Andrew and Philip were so captivated by Jesus that they went to their brother, they went to their friend, and they said what? Come and see. Andrew went to Philip and said, Hey, brother, you got to come see Jesus. 
I don't know everything there is to know about Jesus, but you got to come see him. I'm inviting you to come see Jesus. Philip goes to Nathaniel, we found him. We found the Christ. Come and see. So part of Christmas is not just the personal worship, but it's telling people, your friends, your family, people, you know, hey, come and see this Jesus. Whether it's a personal conversation, whether it's a gospel conversation, whether it's inviting them to church, it, it, you're not keeping it to yourself. You're boldly sharing the gospel so others can see Jesus in all of his glory. Here's the question. Do you not want others to know these 12 names of Jesus? Do you think other people know them? No. They have a distant idea of who Jesus is. He's some guy that lived, had some good teachings. He may be a moral teacher. Yeah, he died on the cross, rose again, but who cares? No, there's so much more. Come and see the Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and help others to turn their eyes upon Jesus this Christmas.